You know, there have been some very unusual court cases throughout time. You know, recently I was uh, reading an article the other day talking about some of them that have happened here within, you know, oh, say the past 10 years. Uh, there was a woman out in California who tried to sue uh, the, the candy company Jelly Belly, claiming she had no idea that jelly beans contained sugar. You know, she was reading the ingredients and it said uh, evaporated cane juice rather than sugar, and so she attempted to sue the candy maker. Uh, speaking along the lines of candy making, uh, the, some tried to sue the makers of Junior Mint because there was a lot of space inside the box. They thought the box should be full of the Junior Mint candy, but it wasn't, so uh, they took them to court. In 2017, a man took a woman on a date, and she was on her cell phone during the whole time, and so he took her to court uh, to get his money back for the ticket that he had spent on the date. Uh, imagine suing your employer because your job is boring. That, that's been done here recently. Or suing your alma mater because after you graduated uh, from college and you went out to look for a, a job with your degree and you couldn't find one, suing them. Or even in 2012, this one was interesting, a kidnapper attempting uh, to sue his hostages for escaping because he claimed that they had this legally binding oral uh, contract or agreement to not to turn him in. And so he took them to court. And finally, this is the one that I uh, enjoyed the most. A man in 2006 uh, sued Michael Jordan because he looked too much like him. You know, there are a lot of uh, crazy court cases that you could have seen. You know, maybe you watch, you know, Judge Judy or something on television and you've seen some of those crazy antics. Well, in, in Psalm 50 uh, that we're going to discuss here this evening, Psalm 50 has the setting for a really unique court case. Uh, God is going to act both as the judge and the plaintiff uh, within this uh, psalm. He's the one who's going to bring the complaint and he's going to be the one who ultimately judges and decides uh, the court case. And the reason this trial uh, is taking place, because there's this breach of the covenant between, uh, between God, again, the plaintiff, and his people, the defendant. And this, this scene that we want to be aware of is not the, the day of judgment. This is not the day that all will be judged. But this is a, a figurative way that God is bringing his people to court. It's a dramatic portrayal of God's calling his chosen people into account for them uh, not keeping the covenant uh, with him to the fullest extent. So we want to examine the, the psalm, uh, learn some background to it, and then notice why he put his people on trial. Well, Psalm 50, uh, maybe in your Bibles, you'll notice that at the, at the top of it, it'll say something to the effect of, this is a psalm of Asaph. Well, who's Asaph? Uh, when, you, when you think of the Psalms, you think of David, right? David pleading to God or, or, or praising him. But we sometimes forget that there are other writers within the book of Psalms. Moses wrote one, uh, Psalm 90. Solomon wrote a couple of Psalms. The sons of Korah wrote about 11 of them. Heman, a man by the name of Heman and Ethan, each wrote a psalm, and there are about 50 of them that are orphaned psalms, meaning we don't know who wrote them. Well, David, we know at least wrote 73 of these. And so, you know, out of the 150, this is almost 50% of all the psalms written by David, but Asaph is the second highest uh, person, author who's contributed with 12 different psalms here in, in Psalm 50, and then he writes 73 through 83, a continuation of those. What do we know about Asaph through scripture? Well, we know that he was close to David. He was a, a musician. He was in some sort of leadership position pertaining to music, First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 5. He was a Levite. 
The Bible says in chapter 29, verse 30 of Second Chronicles is that he was a seer, meaning he was a prophet of God, again, within David's administration, but some sort of role as being a chief musician, uh, someone in charge of making and performing the music for David. And that, again, that's pretty much all we know about him. Uh, Psalm 73 is probably the most uh, well-known psalm that, that he authors, which asks that great question, you know, why do bad people get away with their deeds? It's sort of a heartbreaking psalm where you you almost can see that Asaph, he's ready to give up and ready to quit, seeing all the corruption around him. But then he turns back to following God. But again, back here in Psalm 50 that we're going to focus on this evening, we're going to notice that this psalm is composed of this introduction, verses 1 through 6, of this, again, this lawsuit, this covenant lawsuit setting And then there's going to be two judgments or two speeches that God's going to give. The first one, he's going to give a verdict to those who are worshiping without sincerity. And then he's finally going to give a verdict to those uh, who he is rebuking, those who claim to be living by the covenant, yet are living notoriously or away from God. And so let's notice in chapter 50, verses 1 through 6, let's notice this covenant maker. Psalm 50, starting in verse 1. The mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him, and it is very temptuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me. Those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice and the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. We notice in these first six verses that God is, you know, he's bringing forth uh, uh, the people, uh, the nations, uh, again, figuratively uh, uh, before trial, uh, before his people. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. We all know that any legitimate court case uh, requires witnesses and attorneys and a judge, and that's what we're getting here. The heavens and earth are asked to observe as God interrogates them. And he says, gather my godly ones before me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And this should be a warning for each and every one of us, that if God places a higher standard on his people, if he is willing to take them to court, what about us? Uh, that, that should, we should take note of that. Well, how does a court proceeding usually begin? Right? Usually, you know, if you see something on television or maybe you've been in the court setting, you know, a bailiff will come and say, all rise. You know, the district court of the state of Kentucky is now in session and the honorable judge, you know, so-and-so uh, is presiding. And yes, uh, we understand that, you know, in our court system that we refer to a judge as honorable. But notice ASAP's description of God. Uh, here in these verses, again, in verse one, particularly, he says the mighty one. He is supreme. He is God almighty. And then he says uh, he just refers to him as God. Th- this is the Hebrew word Elohim. It refers to God, the creator, the creator of the universe, all the way back in Genesis 1.1. And then he says, Lord, the Lord. This is the Hebrew word Yahweh, uh, uh, speaking to him as being our redeemer, uh, suggesting his covenant-keeping relationship with Israel. Uh, if you skip on down to verse 14, it refers to God as most high, as most high. But back in verse 6 in our text here at this moment, for God himself is judge. 
Of course, God is more than honorable. You know, in the New Testament, we know that you know, Titus chapter 1, verse 2 says, God cannot lie. Right, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, it's impossible for God to lie. Right, this is who you want to be sitting uh, up there on that court to judge the people. He is flawlessly righteous. He is overwhelmingly qualified. And he is calling the people of earth to, to uh, gather together to witness the, this great court scene. And so as we move on into verses 7 through 15, we're going to notice the covenant takers. Again, his first verdict is that people are not worshiping him from their hearts. Their praise for him constantly is, it's an external praise. Uh, we might refer to this as being ritualistic. We're, being, we're doing rituals, uh, but we don't have the heart into it. Uh, this means, and what that means is, is that we can offer worship that is not pleasing to God. Do we understand that? That we can offer worship that is not pleasing to God. And in the New Testament, uh, we know that Jesus teaches about this elsewhere. In Matthew chapter 15, he talks about the Pharisees uh, performing vain worship. He says that uh, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far away from me. You know, they wanted to follow their traditions. And Jesus says, uh, no, no, you need to follow um, my words, not, not your traditions. And he says, your worship is in vain. You are worshiping in vain. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul is in Athens and he's preaching to the, the, the pagans who are in Athens. You remember, this is that city where he's walking around and there's all of these different idols, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of different idols. And there's that one idol that says to the unknown God. Right? They were worshiping an unknown God. They were worshiping ignorantly. They're saying, I don't see anything wrong with this. Or even in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 and 23, Paul there was telling them that they needed to be careful of not worshiping self-made worship. You know, there are those today that say, you know, I like it this way, so this is how I'm going to worship. But, but, but Paul says that that's incorrect. And so what type of worship does God want from his people? We know from John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, that that John there uh, records for us that, that Jesus said that there is going to be a day that the true worshipers are going to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. They must worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, to worship in spirit means to worship with a godly attitude, that you've got this spiritual frame of mind when, when you come into the worship of your God, that you are, your mind is focused on that, but also we must worship in truth. And that's, of course, by God's authority. That's by what's revealed to us in the word. That's how he wants us to worship. You know, we can worship in spirit, but not in truth, right? Congregations do that when they bring in rock bands or bring in a piano. They're, they're worshiping in spirit, but it's not in truth. Or, or we can worship not in spirit, but in truth, uh, when we sing songs, if we're not internalizing those words, those lyrics, uh, and living by those things, uh, we are worshiping uh, not in spirit. We're doing it in truth. That's what God wants us to do is sing songs of praise, but we're not connecting those words. We're not internalizing those, and so we're not spiritually focused on those words. But again, Jesus says we must do both, worship in spirit and in truth. Notice in verses 7 and 8. The psalmist says here, Hear, O my people, and I will speak of, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings. 
are continually before me. See, they're, they're not being chastised for failing to offer sacrifices. He says that. He says, you're bringing, you're bringing those to me. You're continually bringing those before me. But there's something missing. You know, you know, the, the external part's fine, but it's the internal part that's going to lack. And we'll see that here starting in verse 9. Notice as we continue, he says, I shall take no young bull out of your house, uh, nor uh, male goats out of your folds. He says, I don't want your bulls, I don't want your goats uh, that you're providing without devotion. Uh, they, they weren't taking to heart their worship. Again, it was an empty sort of worship. And again, depending on the sincerity of our heart, God either delights in our worship or he has great displeasure in our worship. Verses 10 and 11, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. God says, these things are mine anyways. Uh, he did not need their livestock. It was already his. And he knows everything about them, too. He created them. But what, how can man give God anything, you might be asking yourselves at this point. Verses 12 and 13. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? See, God has no personal need that you and I can supply. He says, I don't want your sacrifices without your heart, without the purpose behind them. You know, the, the, the false gods of the day, uh, the, the pagans who worship those false gods, they believed uh, that they actually believed that their sacrifices sustained them, sustained sustain their false gods, that they actually ate and drank those things that were sacrificed to them. But again, God is spirit. And he's not sustained by food from the earth. And if he was, you know, he could supply it himself, of course. But it's nothing for God to produce food. You know, we see that uh, throughout the New Testament, Jesus taking the loaves and the fishes and multiplying them out. You know, he could do that if he needed to. But he doesn't need our material things to survive. Despite this, you know, there is one thing that God wants that he uh, could not have. Possibly, And that, of course, is our hearts, the hearts of his creation. You know, God loves us so much. And we talked a little bit about this in Bible class this morning, that he gave us free will. He gave us free will to choose what to do in this life and to choose to love him or to not love him. And, and some of us, or excuse me, some, uh, you know, in the world have um, hardened their hearts and they've been given up and, and they have chosen to not follow God. And so God cannot have their hearts. But he wants our hearts and he wants our sacrifices, uh, especially here in this courtroom setting of the Israelites. He wanted their sacrifices, their worship with heart. Notice 14 and 15 as he concludes this uh, portion. He says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the most high. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. What then should the people do? What shall they give God? See, God, uh, he accepts only one type of sacrifice, one that's according to his will from the heart of, with joy and thanksgiving and devotion to him. See, their animal sacrifices and their vows in the Old Testament, 
Those were to be these concrete expressions of their love and appreciation to God. But today, in the New Covenant, Christianity, which we are a part of, we're moving away from those external things to the internal things. God wants our hearts. We move away from this complex system of you know, taking an animal to the temple and having it sacrificed so that we could have a forgiveness of our sins. And we move away to that to a more simple type of worship uh, where, where, um, where the blood of Jesus takes care of that. We move away again from Moses to Jesus. Romans 12 verse 1 tells us, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Again, God wants our hearts. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Friends, never let us be put on trial, found guilty for a lack of heart within our worship to God. But notice as we move into verses 16 through 21, uh, the, the psalmist is now going to talk about not the covenant takers, but the covenant breakers. Look at verse 16. He says, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell, my, or tell of my statutes and to make my covenant in your mouth? See, now he's referencing those uh, children, or those, uh, those Israelites who were acting, acting wickedly. In God's judgment, he moves from, again, from the sin of formalism, uh, where one has outward action but no inward allegiance, and now to the sin of hypocrisy. He now addresses those Israelites who are living a blatant lie, a blatant wicked life. Those who profess religion with their lips, uh, but disregard it in their lives. They're, They're supposed to be the teachers of these statutes, but they're not living by the commandments. You know, God has always required that our beliefs match our behavior. He will not permit his people to believe one way and then live another. And so notice the following. Notice uh, what he describes again in this court case in verse 17. He says, for you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Remember, again, he's addressing the, the Israelites, those who uh, believe uh, that they are uh, uh, belonging to the covenant. He says they know they know these commands. They should be teaching others, but they themselves do not do that. It's like if you give them a, a manual on how to you know, put together some sort of thing, they just take that manual and throw it behind them. They don't need that. They're arrogant. They, they are prideful. They don't need instructions. And so they cast God's word behind them. And then verse 18, he says, when you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. See, not only does that God condemn them of the sins that they are guilty of personally, but also the permissive attitude that they have towards others who are engaged in grievous sins. You know, and he picks out two that specifically, and these come straight from the law of Moses or from the Ten Commandments. You know, the Seventh Commandment said, do not commit adultery. And the Eighth Commandment said, do not steal from Exodus chapter 20. And they were viewing stealing as no big deal. They were watching others steal, uh, doing theft, and it was no big deal to them. And it says even that they were delighting in the wickedness of these things. And then uh, he brings up adultery as well. They should have been imploring those other Israelites, their brothers and sisters, to turn away from such gross immorality. uh, But they were condoning it. In Romans chapter 1. And again, we, we touched on this a little bit in Bible class this morning. But in Romans chapter 1, Paul is listing out uh, a bunch of egregious 
sins. Uh, he categorized them, you know, one by one, starting in verse 28, 29, 30, and 31. And we won't take the time to read all of those uh, that he lists there. But notice verse 32, because he says, And although they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. See, he's saying that they are just as culpable as those who are committing the sins. They are endorsing it. God says this is not going to happen. Look at verse 19. He says, you let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames deceit. You know, of course, uh, there are many different types of uh, evil that we can do from one's mouth, lying, misleading innuendos, falsehoods. And notice that he says that they are framing, uh, again, in verse verse 19, they are framing, their tongue frames deceit. Uh, They're scheming, they're plotting, you know, they're they're framing it and putting it up on, on the wall for all to see. It's not just some slip of the tongue, but this is something that they were planning and plotting. And then notice in verse 20, because he says, you sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. You know, it's bad enough that they're using their tongues for evil, but they're turning it against their own family, their own flesh and blood, the ones that they should protect the most. And he says, you sit and speak. It suggests that they're deliberately uh, practicing this, speaking evil against others. Again, not just the slip of the tongue. And then notice verse 21. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. God said, I have kept silent. Uh, You know, we tend to believe that one is silent about a matter, that they condone it or they they excuse the actions. Uh, But they're failing to realize here that God's long suffering never means that he is indifferent to sin. You know, they're, they're saying to themselves, well, God's not uh, striking us dead. He doesn't care how long it, or how we live our lives just as long as, you know, we pay our tithes or we, br- we bring an animal to be sacrificed. But God says, you thought I was just like you. See, they were making God in their own image, just like themselves. You know, God's their buddy. Right? They speak one way, but behind his back, they're living another God will be good with our sacrifices, and he'll overlook our actions, they say. After all, he hasn't punished us yet. But God then says, I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Friends, we, we see that their, their actions, their thoughts were twisted and false. God has this case against them, and he's going to lay out the evidence perfectly here. Let us never, again, be put on trial found guilty of living this hypocritical life as a Christian. And so we're going to conclude here with verses 22 and 23 of this psalm of Asap. And notice here that he says, Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces, and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, and to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. See, the people were given this, this really vivid two-pronged warning. He said, 
the first one stresses severity. He says, I'm going to uh, shatter you to pieces if you don't turn around. Uh, again, the figurative language here, but then he emphasizes with its eternal nature. He says, there will be none to deliver you. And so they're asked to consider or understand what has been said. Again, to take God's word to heart, to reflect on them, allow them to sink into their minds and their consciences. And the ultimate goal here, again, is to bring them to repentance, to change their mind about how they're treating God in their worship. Because the time will come when no rebellious person can be delivered from the sure and certain judgment. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 tells us, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may give uh, that which uh, he has done in the deeds, whether good or bad. God, however, he tempers his threat with mercy. We see there in verse 23, the one who returns to me and he offers praise to me from a sincere heart and brings his life into harmony with my precepts will be saved. Christians, of course, now uh, live under that new covenant, uh, the, the covenant of Christianity, that new relationship with, with God. And Psalm 50 reminds us, it reminds us here today that we can't, uh, offer empty ritualistic worship to God. But we must maintain a vibrant and obedient relationship to God to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so as we conclude this lesson, let us pray that our worship never goes on trial, right? Before God, who is going to be the plaintiff and the judge. See, our worship is on trial, and so uh, we must make sure that, that we are doing things, again, in spirit and in truth. This evening, as, as we offer the invitation, if there's anyone here that, that, that needs to respond to the gospel call uh, to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, we would love that opportunity to help you. Or, or if you're here this evening and you need the prayers of this congregation, you, know, you maybe need the strength, uh, again, of your brothers and sisters, uh, whatever your needs uh, be this evening. Let us know as together we stand and sing.